Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 10th November with me, Ian Welsh. I'm in Washington, D.C. this week at Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action and Scope to the Emissions Conference, and there will be plenty of content to come from that in the podcast over the coming weeks. Coming up is a quick review from my colleague B. Stevenson and me that we recorded following the opening day of the conference. Plus, we've got some further insights from the recent Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in Amsterdam, from Golden Agri Resources and Ethan Ebel, Chester Zoo's Catherine Barton, and Innovation Forum Associate Peter Sanbury. No news this week. That'll be back next time. In Washington, D.C. this week, at the end of the first day of the Innovation Forum Future of Climate Action and Scope 3 Emissions Conference, B. Stevenson and I sat down to talk about some of the main talking points that had emerged from the sessions and breakouts. Regulation. We talked about regulation this morning. I would essentially looking at the Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S., and what came out of it really, there's a lot of money available from this piece of legislation. The resources are there to build a new economy, but a lot of the money just needs a good home. There's a need for more and more projects that will take forward the aims of the Act in finding ways for business to reduce emissions. Another thing that came out earlier, and we talked a little about communication, communicating these challenges, but someone made the point, don't underestimate the value of just the simple form of communication when building collaboration. Someone talked about the power of just picking up the phone. And I see it's very easy sometimes to underestimate the value of the simple. When we have so many complicated and sophisticated ways to interact, sometimes the simple can be the best. Across the sessions today, I've really been struck by the, you know, a big gap in understanding on many levels on some of the issues and then the regulation and the difference in perspectives from corporates and civil society and lots of these issues are so a long way apart. The conversations are being had. These people have been working together for a long time, but the, the difference in perception at companies and civil society NGOs is very different. There's a real balance, I think, between the need for the change, the fact that we have to get on with it immediately on so many issues around climate change, tackling emissions, but there's also time that the real transition requires and how do we get that balance right? Really, really challenging to do so. And alongside that, those that are making the investments and they've been the brave people to make the changes necessary, they need to have market presence guarantees at the end of it so they know that they will get the incentives are there. And on top of that, there's the need for market-based solutions to incentivize and reward change. Someone pointed out that you want to see the action, then you need to hit companies in the P&L. All these incentives need to align up to allow those who are here who want to make the change necessary to be able to do so. That's some of the things that I've heard. B, what have you picked up? A lot of my key takeaways are really to do with the need for urgent action at this point and a real feeling that progress just needs to be made. In terms of targets, there's a lot of chat about how companies have focused a lot on targets. A lot of companies have made net zero 2050 type goals, very known. But now, are they communicating enough on their progress and their performance on climate action? And that is quite unclear. There is a need for metrics and accountability at this stage. And the interim target point as well, isn't it? They can, in fact, yes, 2050, we've moved away from the vague 2050 type target to actually, well, okay, that's the goal ultimately, but the real target now is what we're doing for 2025 or we'll be for 2030. That's been borne out of what we've heard in today. Exactly. So breaking it down and then also in terms of financing, companies actually knowing how to get it done is the key. But on the other side, I've heard a lot today about the business case really being accepted for decarbonisation and wider sustainability. A lot of stories about leadership actually understanding that decarbonisation is part of success 
and that it can also be an opportunity to innovate and improve your product, so your offering, and basically to get something fresh to your door. And then also in terms of the supplier side, that driving expansion of supplier incentives and investing in them as a whole, not just for your part, makes economic sense in that sourcing from a limited number of good players is just bad business as it would just drive up prices. A lot of companies are playing in a market with limited supply being a risk. And then finally, the idea that accuracy to the third decimal place degree maybe isn't the most important element here for a lot of the topics we're talking about. And it's really just about getting started, putting those initial strategies together and getting going and doing the best that you can for the time being. Exactly. A lot of it, is, as you see, is around what's the best solution we've got right now? Let's use that, but improve it as we go along and find new solutions as we go. We can't, the, the time for sitting around and handling is over. It was great that that was one of the emerging themes, I think, from the event. The kind of frustration at not just getting on with it now was there. I guess the people that are here are the ones that do want to get on with it, but they're sharing their frustrations for sure. It's been a great day's conversation. Looking forward to another one tomorrow. B, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. In Amsterdam recently at the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference, I spoke with Anita Nebel, Chief Sustainability and Communications Officer at Golden Angle Resources, Catherine Barton, Head of Policy at Chester Zoo, and Peter Stanbury, Senior Associate at Innovation Forum. I'm joined by Anita Nebel from Golden Angle Resources. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Ian. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations over the past couple of days about the European Union's deforestation regulation. 14 months out, how do you think it's going to be implemented or what will the road look like from here through to the end of December 2024? Well, I think it's going to be like watching one of those really slow motion train crashes in a movie. There's an inevitability to it. I think it's been fascinating that over the course of the conference, really it has been the dominating conversation. Everyone wants to talk about it. Everyone's concerned about it. And unfortunately, we know very little or we still have a real lack of clarity about exactly how implementation is supposed to work, what will be accepted in terms of the data to demonstrate compliance. And I think that the biggest threat or challenge perhaps is a better word than threat around EUDR is that it is a binary game. You have to be 100% perfect mm -hmm. for every shipment of the commodities that are coming into the EU that are affected by the regulation from day one. Most businesses are very risk averse. Most businesses are now scrambling to understand what is the risk in my supply chain? How do I eliminate that risk between now and 14 months from now? In the hope that you can deliver shipments on the 5th of December 2024 or whatever the exact date is, that will be absolutely perfect. No non-compliance. So that's, I think, why it's dominating the conversation and I think it's going to be really messy and chaotic. You're in the palm oil sector. I am. It does feel like palm oil's quite well ahead of other commodities. There's been a bit of a sense over the past couple of days of other commodities going, wow, we've got a lot to do here. I mean, do you think that palm yeah. oil's been doing the heavy lifting here? I really do, because palm oil has been in an incredibly vociferous kind of spotlight around deforestation, and rightly so. Like, we have legacy, we have game, not positive game, in the past. And we've been really working very hard over the last decade or so to address deforestation in our supply chains and to decouple deforestation from palm oil production. I think palm oil became a proxy for the deforestation conversation in Europe as a whole and certainly a proxy for the EUDR conversation. You know I saw it a few weeks ago in coverage that came out of Vietnam around coffee for example where it feels as though other commodities affected by the regulation 
coffee, cocoa, cattle, soy, rubber, pulp and paper, timber products, are suddenly going, oh, hang on a second. This applies to us too. So we've been doing traceability. We've been doing supply chain transformation. We've been doing satellite monitoring and doing all of this work as part of no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation commitments for the past decade, which we think gives Palm an excellent platform, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions and some quite serious unintended consequences of this regulation that we're going to have to work through in the coming 14 months. What do you think are the principal unintended consequences then? The main one discussed at this conference is how can we continue to have smallholders feeding into the European supply chain with these requirements for deforestation free and particularly legality of smallholders. In the palm sector, smallholders represent about 40 to 50% of global production. Many of them are operating in a deforestation free context, but don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the documentation to be able to demonstrate compliance in a way that would satisfy the EUDR requirements as we understand them today, and particularly in relation to land title and legality as farmers. So I think the unintended consequence of the regulation is that we're gonna see streaming of supply into Europe. And we've already seen some members of the palm sector publicly acknowledge that they're continued to be committed to smallholder sourcing, but that sourcing won't enter the EU market. So the EU can say whatever it likes about that this isn't meant to be discriminatory against any kind of producer type, but I think the reality of the requirements, again, as we understand them today, maybe that'll change, is that smallholders will represent the weakest link in terms of this need for perfect compliance from day one and will be moved out of supplying Europe and they'll supply other markets. No doubt there's been a drive by the EU markets to drive improvements in, in palm oil supply and in other commodities. That incentive, that push is not going to be there anymore. It's a reality that European companies, European regulators have driven a tremendous amount of the progress that we've seen in sustainability and sustainable food systems and sustainable supply chains. And that push has also been backed in most cases by investment. What we've seen with the EUDR is regulation without that investment to ensure that producers can comply with the requirements. And that's just punitive. So there is a concern that as companies require EUDR compliance supply in order to continue to bring product into this market, where will the investment come from? Will they still be happy to invest in smallholder transformation, for example, if that smallholder product is not going to be able to enter into their European supply chain, but actually go somewhere else? And I think that's a question mark for everyone. I mean, do you think they're going to be just certain suppliers will stop supplying the European Union? Is this because, you know, why would they jump through all these hoops for a relatively small market? I want to be really clear, Golden Agri Resources, we like to supply to Europe. We have very good customers here in Europe and we will make it work. We're of a scale where we believe we can make it work and we've been making the investments, as I mentioned, in terms of 98.5% traceable to plantation sourcing and so on. So we're committed to staying in Europe. But yeah, I think that smaller actors may think twice. And I think that certain volumes that have traditionally come into Europe will be deviated somewhere else. 
What else is happening in the palm oil sector? What other things you'd like to be talking about alongside EDR? Oh, I think the other part of the conversation here, actually, the question around carbon accounting and how do we do that? How do we buy emissions reductions within value chains? What do we attribute to our own companies? What do we have to attribute to the national accounts. This has been a really active conversation in Indonesia, for example, where the domestic carbon trading market has really only just kicked off in the last couple of weeks. So it's been really interesting to hear the conversations around carbon. And obviously, I think we're also looking at what does it mean when we start to talk about nature and biodiversity? Lots of language that is evolving still around nature net positive, forest positive. Sustainability just gets broader and deeper and you know, the regulations and the new frameworks are coming at us at pace. Quite a lot to, to sink your teeth into. Let's open 12 months time, we're not only talking about the EDR. I suspect in 12 months time, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about because I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that it's a bit like that slow motion train crash. We'll be right at the point where the thing comes off the rails this time next year. Well, let's look forward to that. Anything Neville, thanks very much. My pleasure. <coughs> joined by Catherine Barton, who's policy lead at Chester Zoo. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work at Chester Zoo? We do a few different projects at Chester Zoo. Our main aim is preventing extinction of biodiversity. So everything we do focuses back on biodiversity and animals and, and extinction. But we do that in many ways. So one of our big projects is looking at supply chains, deforestation-free commodities. And we particularly work in palm oil landscapes as well, where we're um, carrying out orangutan conservation. We've heard an awful lot about the impacts of the incoming EU deforestation regulation on everything at the event. How do you see the potential impacts of EUDR being on conservation? I think that's a funny one because I think this EUDR has been something that NGOs have been pushing for for a number of years and it's brilliant that this is in place now. So in terms of it being the first world law on deforestation, then the impact for that could be huge. And it could be a follow-up in future for other countries to take this on board. I think one thing that we've found though, certainly working with UK businesses and EU businesses as well, is that we are already getting a good supply of, for example, sustainable palm oil. So in terms of the impact on conservation, although we will clean up the EU's supply chain, we're not necessarily going to stop any more deforestation in the field. The sense from a lot of people is that actually what will happen is the clean supply chain that's already being produced is going to come through the market into the EU and that the impact on the ground will be negligible. However, I think if we can use the EUDR as a case study going forward, now that there's a clear message out to agribusiness that deforestation in supply chains uh, needs to be eliminated, then that's the way you can move forward in the future. Yeah, we've certainly heard an awful lot about the unintended consequences potentially of EUDR across the event here. So how are your projects specifically going to be impacted then, do you think, by the regulation? It is a bit of a funny one because as conservationists, we always laugh that we're almost trying to make ourselves redundant through our jobs, particularly on one of my big projects, which is a behaviour change campaign looking at UK businesses and encouraging them to adopt sustainable palm oil practices. If you put a legislation in place, then that is done for you, which is fantastic. In terms of the EUDR though, with the UK being set outside of that, there will be some UK businesses that are impacted by the EUDR, so we, I feel like we will start to see some legislative changes in the UK by the end of next year. However, I think it'll be when the UK due diligence comes in at a later date that we'll see the biggest impact on our projects. Having said that, for us at Chester Zoo and for zoos globally, it's not just about cleaning our supply chain, it's having that impact on the ground. 
So as zoos and aquariums, we actually work collaboratively across the world with other global zoos. So what I can see this doing is, is giving us a move to working in more countries where the buy-in is bigger and looking at trying to have an impact in some of the other kind of producer and buyer countries outside of the EU. For you then, what does a sensible approach to regulation and tackling deforestation in general look like? I think a sensible approach is not assuming that legislation is going to be a silver bullet. The same way as we look at certification, it's everything playing together. Obviously this legislation is going to have an impact, it's sent out a very clear message. I think next steps are making sure that not only this is this implemented, but that it's monitored and evaluated. There is a concern that commodities that are outside of the scope of the current EUDR are going to be impacted and nature will be impacted. So for example, people moving from palm to coconut oil, which isn't actually currently in the EUDR. So there's a lot of monitoring that I think will need to take place by people on the ground to make sure that there's no further deforestation for the commodities. And then it's also not forgetting the what our goal is here, which is stopping deforestation on the ground. EUDR isn't going to do that by itself, so we need to continue those NGO conversations, those industry-to-industry conversations, government-to-government conversations as well, that we don't just stop at legislation and that we're continuing to look at these landscape approaches, bringing smallholders on board. So there's a lot to play for here and it's not just legislation that's going to have the impact. A slight concern is that there's so much focus going to be put on EUDR that it will take our eye off the ball a little bit on the landscape approaches so yes. just making sure that everything is still to play for and people still keep that focus of deforestation free as the goal so keeping the focus on the, on the fact that an all solutions approach really is required yeah definitely Catherine Barton thanks very much thank you I'm joined by Peter Sambury welcome hello Ian We've just wrapped up at uh, Innovation Indeed Forum's uh, Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference. Clearly, the European Union deforestation regulation dominated a lot of the conversations. Some quite negative comments, some talking about lots of challenges. Others keen to point out that it's a well-meaning, well-intended bit of legislation that you know perhaps the devil will be in the detail of its implementation. I certainly picked up the unintended consequences when the Muslim masses point around having to remove potentially some box molder farmers mm. from supply chains. If that's included across other commodities, Muslim masses in the power sector, there's going to be some big changes if that's what happened. Yeah, it? It's a real challenge. It's a balancing act. On the one hand, regulation and legislation can drive improved behaviours, but if you get to the stage where the consequences are not what you'd want them to be, and I think excluding smallholder farmers is clearly going to be one of them, that's not helpful. Yeah. So there is some thought needed about how we can go forward without that being a problem. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that came out of the conference. One thing that came out for me, we talked quite a lot about the flag and GHG protocol going into being finally feels that we're able to make some progress on scope three. Yes, I think with all these things, it's a question of people coalescing around what a sensible definition looks like being. And I think, again, one of the things I think we've seen come out of the last couple of days is people being prepared to try stuff, try new ideas, try new ways of working, and then find out what works best and then improve as they go along. And I think being able to have a clearer idea of well, what do we mean by scope three, how do we quantify it, how do we deal with it, I think has got to be a step in the right direction. We've introduced this year, which I've been very excited about, a lot more engagement with, with growing communities, with yeah. farmers. We had have some videos across the couple of days. We had a panel this morning. I spoke on Zoom with a farmer in Malawi and a farmer in Uganda. Very powerful testimony hearing from yes, them. Exactly. Clearly, they need to be involved in the conversation. Yeah, I think otherwise there's a danger that farmers are things under whom things are done. It's almost a quasi-colonial approach, whereas actually understanding what they're facing into understanding what they might want to do about it I think is key and we had a very good example of local government 
organizing from Indonesia. So it's very clear that these things can happen, but we do need to be better at listening to them. Yeah. Resilience was a key point as well, yeah, wasn't it? Keep, exactly. keep coming out. Resilience to regulatory change, yeah. resilience to climate change, and also long-term commitments it's and acceptance problem. that change in the short term might be <coughs> negative, but for the positive long-term change, you need to accept that there's going to be these blips, bumps in the road. Yes. Change leads to complexity. I chaired a panel looking at financing of climate change and some of the complexity, the different layers around country political risk, longevity of off-taking, because it's not just about we can sell it. You've got to have a contract in place for 10 or 15 years in order that a bank's risk committee can accept it. So there are real challenges about that. But again, I think we're doing better at gradually identifying these individual challenges and finding ways of dealing with them. Yeah, financing huge. Carbon markets, we talked about. I don't think there's lots of conversation to be had around how the carbon markets can benefit growing communities. That's not yet at a mature level, I don't think, but yep. those, level, those conversations will no doubt continue. And incentives, we heard a lot about incentives that are perverse. And again, the regulatory incentives are sometimes not in the right way. We need to have incentives that encourage business communities to step forward to do the right things to deal with impact. The most interesting one of that was what do you do with farmers who've managed their environment well for 50 years? They haven't deforested. And under the way the current regulations and the current process works, people who've done bad things in the past get rewarded for doing less bad things now. Whereas those who've done well all along are missed out of the equation. So again, there are obviously instances like that which we need to address better. Well, we've had a great couple of days. Fun having you along as ever, Peter. Thanks very Absolutely. much. Well, great to be here as ever and see you next year. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Do look out for more insights from our autumn events over the coming weeks. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.